This is Bonjour Chai, the Shattering Glasses and Breaking Stereotypes edition. I'm one of your hosts, David Sklar, in Calgary, along with Alana Zakon in Montreal, and Avi Feingold somewhere in Louisville, Kentucky. Today we talk with Rabbi Lily Kowalski of Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom in Montreal, and Rabbi Philip Bregman, the rabbi of Temple Shalom in Vancouver, on their imposing views of interfaith marriage. Alana, Avi, how's it going? How are you? Mazel tov, yeah. you just got married. Forget about Not, yeah, forget about us. <laughs> How was your wedding? <laughs> uh, incredibly chaotic and crazy. Um, so what happened is a f- about Friday before the wedding, I was starting to feel unwell. What? Um, I thought maybe this is a cold or, or a cough. COVID? I went to test. I, te- I tested negative on the weekend. So I thought, okay, this is fine. Oh, no. This is just going to a 24 hour flu. And then I still felt unwell Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, I took a COVID test. I tested positive. Oh my God. And that's when shit hit the fan. Um, I went home, I freaked out. Uh, I became quite hysterical Wednesday afternoon and John and I sat down to decide, oh my God, my parents are coming in the next day. What do we do? Do we cancel this wedding? How is it all going to work out? Luckily, John, uh, he calmed me down. He crafted a very good, delicate email to all of our guests to let them know of the situation of testing positive. He sort of left it in everyone's hands to decide for themselves what they wanted to do. And we weren't sure if we were going to lose like 50% of our guests and the food had already been ordered. Are we going to be out thousands of dollars? Um, Surprisingly, out of 100 people, only four declined to come. Everyone else was so apathetic. They didn't care. They're like, I've had COVID. I got COVID 10 days ago. I don't really care. That being said, I'm planning on getting COVID Sunday morning at the wedding before the wedding. (laughs) Exactly. But, but the thing is like, according to Alberta guidelines, I would have been out of the COVID window by Sunday. So the time I started feeling, yeah, I started feeling like symptomatic on Friday and Alberta sort of says five days of symptoms. I would have been out of that window regardless, but John and I made some decisions very on the fly and very quickly that we were going to be masked for the reception, for the ceremony. We were going to keep our distance. John and I, we were going to have our own separate table removed at least six feet from everyone else. Which is good at weddings anyways, because who wants to be hanging out with your guests? You want to be having a meal with the two of you. Exactly. The good news is I started testing negative Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) So I felt much more comfortable and in discussions with rabbi mark lickman he was like look i think it's a really good idea that you remove your masks while you do your vows while we do the ceremony while we while we so everyone can really see your faces and enjoy it and we we both agreed to that we weren't even going to do the chairlifting at some point john was like no 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 which by the way was a beautiful ceremony it really was i got to see that clip you sent us um we should can we play a bit of that uh absolutely we can listen to a clip of the rabbi right now this moment David and John, this time, this event that we are sharing together, it was foreordained from the very dawn of creation. You said that people, John, you said that people used to say, and it still still do, tragically, that God hates moments like these. But anybody who knows you knows that these are the moments that are truly sacred. These are the moments that God wants to have. And we, as a fringe benefit, get to share in the joy. 
So, David, I'm really curious to know which traditions you ended up putting into your wedding. We had so many discussions over so many months about, like, are you going to break two glasses? How are you going to, you know, make it work for, you know, a non-heteronormative wedding? What, what did you decide to do? And interfaith on top of it. Interfaith, interracial, all that jazz. Um, in terms of your first question, breaking of the glass, that fell to me just because of how important it was that I did it. And we told a story at the reception where... Uh, I went to Jewish school and I think some, I must have been in grade one where the teacher was explaining like all these Jewish rituals. They talked about marriage and how the man breaks the glass at the end of the ceremony. And I got really nervous as a six-year-old boy and I said, oh no, I may not be able to break this glass. It might be too strong for me. So I went home that day. I told my parents just about how nervous I was about breaking this glass. And I think oh what my God. they, um, what was that? <laughs> yeah. Go <laughs> and then they, too much. then they decided you know what to make david feel better we're gonna wrap it we're gonna give him a glass as a six-year-old and oh I, I i got to do it and then after i i figured you know what i am strong enough to break this, this glass is peak david peak david this is peak david i got to do it i broke the glass i felt so much better we told that story to our friends and family um as as we did it so that's why i ended up just breaking the glass in terms of the other stuff not too dissimilar, not too different, except for some couple of language. Like the rabbi, you know, gave this really wonderful speech that had people crying all over. I did vows. John did vows. We exchanged rings. Um, we, we, we drank from the cup. And I forget most of it, right? As the rabbi is talking, I could not really remember what was happening and what was being said. And that's so why luckily, you have videotapes. Uh, we got some family members. <laughs> Thank the Lord for videotapes because I could not tell you what 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 he said well as somebody who does weddings and i'm on the other side there um i I would hope that sometimes you're in the moment enough that you're not thinking about the before and the after and you're just thinking about the the moment right then and that sounds like what you were doing so you were not doing something wrong i think you're that was wonderful i uh the the, i I started off very wrong because we had the original idea that john and i were going to come in together well yeah because you had covid we had covid so we had to make some changes like it was supposed to be our parents that were going to bring us in separately we we eschewed that idea so as soon as the music started the rabbi took off i was on the heels of the rabbi leaving john in his dust and he was like is this what the rest of our marriage is going to be like? You just leave me way behind. So you don't see that in the video, but I just took off and I left John way behind. He's like, what is going on? (laughs) I want to, I want to bring up a point that comes up in the interview that we're going to hear shortly uh, with Rabbi Kowalski. David, you kind of talked about your concern about the future of the Jewish people um, and how five or six generations from now, someone from an interfaith, marriage might have uh, a descendant who doesn't know that they're Jewish. So how has that played out for you in your decision to engage into an interfaith marriage? I don't know if you're planning on having kids, but go for it. No, but it's a really, it's, it's a legitimate question. Look, you know, I married John because I loved John and, and this is the reality that we live in. But I think at the same time in my brain, there is this thought process that you are worried that if we were to hypothetically have children, right? John is grew up Catholic. He has Buddhist streaks in him. He is not Jewish. What would our child or children look like? Would they be celebrating both Hanukkah and Christmas at the same time, right? What would then happen to that child who may say, oh, I feel very comfortable living in both of these faiths or I feel stronger to one. But then the likelihood that this child 
would not end up marrying a Jew just because we are a minority in the world, right? Where we live. So this this child then marries someone. This the my child yeah. then has a child who then sort of says, well, I'm a quarter Jewish. And then it just gets whittled down. I think there's yeah. a legitimate concern. About so, that. so are you saying that if you did want to have children, you might have... Uh, actively sought out someone Jewish? No, not necessarily. Because for me, the important thing is love. The important thing is you have to find someone that really matches and that means so much to you. I could not, I could not sort of ignore everyone else in the dating pool and sort of say, I'm only going to date Jews. I'm sure. only going to date Jews. I'm not necessarily even attracted to, you know, Jewish men. So the idea behind that was I need to find who is important to me and is going to fulfill my life. And I don't want to whittle down and then sort of end up lonely because I I, sure. I, ignored everyone else. Well, look, and there's also, remember, there's no guarantee that two Jewish people that marry each other are not going to necessarily uh, either themselves ignore their Jewish heritage and decide that they don't want to have anything to do with it or yeah. their children won't. So it has nothing to do necessarily with who you're with. Yeah. Um, it has to do with what you believe going into the relationship. And the values that you share. I, I can speak from my personal experience. Yeah. That this was a lot of what was going through my head um, in a previous relationship that I had, which was with someone who wasn't Jewish. And what I kept thinking was that if we were never going to have kids, I think we could have made it maybe work. Because Mm. when you introduce kids, that's kind of like what made it all fall apart for me was knowing, you know, that was my whole philosophy. Exactly what you said is like, it's about the person, it's about love. But then when you start thinking about the future and how to raise kids, it suddenly it was very, very apparent that we did not want the same things. And I think obviously every couple is different, but I do think that's where it starts to get complicated. And I had the exact same thought process of, oh, in even one generation, why would my kids choose to be in this, you know, prosecute, like this minority that's attacked, (laughs) when they could join the mass you know so it's complex yeah i i gotta tell you i don't know if you remember our guest um uh dr stephen lapidus yes um, from several weeks ago uh, so uh, he was actually a ta of mine for one of my courses um that's where i initially got to know him um and i remember having a moment um when it was a class on religion and sexuality and oh, I've taken the, a class on that. We were talking about religion. We were talking about uh, sexuality. And we were talking about um, various religious approaches to homosexuality. And I had the standard response um, that a lot of religious people had about homosexuality at the time, which was, it's fine. It's wonderful. I think God, you know, it's, you know, love is love. And that's important. Um, and that was a groundbreaking position back then. But I was like, but why do you need this pride parade? And why do you need to like, sh- you know, be really out there with one sexuality with your, you know, which is whatever. And he was like, why do you need to shove God into my face? Right. About your like, you know, with your kippa and your Judaism and you're doing all that. Because that those two, right? Why why do you think that it's bad that I do this? And why do you think it's bad that I do that? And it really shifted a lot of things for me. But it also made me realize, and that's where I'm going with this in terms of uh, what you guys are saying, is that um, for a lot of people, their sexuality is important, right? If other people, religion has has that that, that importance that they close certain things off, and that when those things aren't important to you, then you don't end up um, passing that tradition along, right? So if your Judaism is important to you enough that you, you know, want to have it as part of your life and you want to incorporate these traditions into your life and, and, and into your marriage and into your, into your weddings, then, then that's going to be carried forward. If you're not, if you don't care so much about it, even if you are both Jewish, you're not going to pass that forward, right? Um, 
I get that the, the analogy isn't perfect. You don't pass sex, homosexuality on to one. Some right. Some some people would say you probably do, and that's what they're so concerned yes, about in Florida. Exactly. So so let's not go there. Um, but you know that to me is at the core of where these discussions are. I wasn't part of the discussions that you had with the rabbis um, um, because you know I, I I have ideas, I have beliefs, but I don't I wanted you guys to really engage with those ideas independent of you know, obvious and whatever. Um, but but that's exactly, I think, at the core of where we're at here is thinking about um, how important um, one's traditions are to you um, and to the marriage that you're entering into. And also the yeah. support that you can get from a partner, because I think it's from what I've observed, the people that I know that are in Jewish interfaith marriages, the ones that last are the ones that have partners who are really supportive of the Judaism and you know, open to learning and joining and doing things. And if you have someone who's just like, hey, I'm with you in every other way, but I just can't be there for you Jewishly, I don't know, that's going to cause a lot of friction, in my experience. And that's that's what I love about our relationship. John is clearly not Jewish and has no interest in converting to Judaism, but he has tremendous respect for what is important to me. And he, he harps on me all the time. David, you should be going to synagogue more often. David, you should be involved more with your community. And I go, oh, I don't want to. I'd want to sleep in. Can't I just enjoy my challah bread? And he's like, no, you need to find better defining things and you need to have deeper ties to this culture and this religion so there is support for that go john go john yeah and on that note let's hear from rabbi lily kowalski today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor atelier lou bijouterie in montreal quebec Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. So joining us today is Rabbi Lily Kowalski of Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom. Rabbi, welcome to Bonjour High. Thank you so much for having me, David and Alana. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. Interfaith marriage. There's a lot of discussion about this going on. Some people think, you know, this is the best thing to happen to the Jewish people. And some people think this is the end of the Jewish community and Jewish faith. I'd really love to hear your perspective. Where are you in this type of debate? Yeah, I feel like um, in some instances, every once in a while, there's conversations about what we think might be the the silver bullet, shall we say, for saving the Jewish people. And the interfaith marriage debate has come back and forth throughout time as one of those pieces that could be considered a tipping point. Um, personally speaking, um, I wouldn't have my, uh, my wonderful family and my wonderful cousins uh, for in particular without um, interfaith marriage. Um, so I, you know, clearly this is something that's very important to me personally and um, something we're actively involved with at Temple Emmanuel Beshalom as well. Um, so just the short answer, yay interfaith marriage. <laughs> How do you respond to people when they come at you with that question? Like, is this the end of the Jewish people? How are we going to keep longevity? Uh, this, you know, whether you have a personal backstory or not. A statement like this is the end of the Jewish people, whether it's something regarding Judaism or in, uh, in any other instance as well, this is the end of something, is um, 
I, I would venture to say a little bit hyperbolic and, you know, I don't think there's any one piece that, um, that signifies the end of things. One of the things that we talk about in Reform Judaism is that um, we're continuing to have, it's an ongoing process. There's an evolution that happens and so that there are certain pieces that we see throughout the, um, throughout history that can be seen as watershed or tipping point moments, and it's a it's an opportunity to continue to grow and develop and evolve. And so I think that's w when we have that kind of, you know, almost throwing all of your cards on the table statement about uh, something that's going to be the end of something or is really the the high point of something. I think it's it's important to balance that with awareness about history that we've had some of these other conversations. Um, about really important discussions as well in the past, and clearly, it nothing has been the end of Judaism so far. And so, I would be uh, I, I would be cautious to say that this, you know this or anything else would mark or signal the end of Judaism. But if I was to put on my you know like time travel goggles, and in a hundred years I, I see you know, children or kids, they sort of say, this is, this is how I envision it. Oh yeah, you know, I think my great-grandfather might have been Jewish, but mm, I don't know for sure. Couldn't that sort of happen if we continue to have lots of interfaith marriage, kids are raised maybe with both two different types of religion, then this child is obviously going to potentially marry someone who is not Jewish. And then it sort of whittles down this, this Jewish tree that, you know, I've heard people sort of say, oh, I think I'm one eighth indigenous and they don't know anything about their culture or their history or anything like that. Could that not happen in the future with the Jewish community where unless it's promoted at home or in Jewish institutions like Jewish schools, is that not a potential thing that will happen in a hundred years? I mean, firstly, I'll say, don't we already have that? We have plenty of people who have Jewish ancestry and Jewish background who discover it through things like Ancestry.com or 23andMe or anything like that. We already have some of those people here. Um, and number two, part of our position at, at Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom, and I can speak from some of my personal experience. I can speak from some of my experience with Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom. Um, at the temple, our position with interfaith marriage is that it's we're offering a piece that is a Jewish marriage where one of the members happens to be not Jewish. So the commitment and the dedication in this interfaith marriage is still to Judaism and to the Jewish people and to, um, you know, should they, be, should they be considering having children, that those children will be continued to be raised Jewish and actively engaged in a Jewish life at home and hopefully also at the temple. That's, that's our perspective in terms of this. So that, that piece that you're asking about, David, at least from our perspective with what we're able to offer, is that that's not our purview. Our purview is still about a Jewish continuity in that regard, for lack of a better term. And for having that space for these families to, to do what they need to do within their families and still be active, engaged members of the Jewish community. As the, as the director of education, as we're getting ready to, to start the school year, I'm meeting with a lot of our families right now 
um, just to kind of introduce myself. And we've got a number of families that we know who are participating, who are actively engaged, involved members of our community, of our tourist school, and their and their children are, you know, clearly. Um, aware of their Jewish upbringing, their Jewish background, their Jewish engagement, and one of their parents happens to not be Jewish. On that note, so if there's a couple that comes to uh, your temple where it is an interfaith marriage, but it's something that like kind of more along the lines of what you mentioned before, where maybe the other partner is from a, actually a different religion and they kind of want to do both, is that something that would be accepted? Or does it have to be only Jewish, even though there's one partner who's not? It's a great question. We are very upfront with our um, with our process about what we um, what we expect and what we hope. There's uh, for with the process of um, getting married. Part of our process also includes um, education. That when we have interfaith couples who are seeking to get married um, under our auspices, they take our Intro to Judaism course so that they understand what creating a Jewish life and leading a Jewish life means. And I, I will say there is always the possibility that when um, when a couple approaches us, we we might be saying, you know, I'm sorry, we might not be the right fit or the right choice for you. Um, there, there are certain pieces that might bring up that piece. We want to be able to get to and say yes as we can, but also knowing that you know we do still have our lines that we um, that we will hold to in that regard. Um, and I think that would also be the case, you know, potentially regardless of what congregation I I was working at. Each congregation is going to have their different kind of standards for which they they will adhere to and each rabbi also has personal standards for which they would adhere to um so you know the kind of classic two jews three opinions right you put two two or three rabbis in the room and you're going to get five or six different answers about this um but there is always a possibility of of not having the right match between a couple and a rabbi and and needing to encourage them to pursue the best option for them and what they want and what they need. And how do you advise couples when sometimes there might be some genuine faith or cultural conflicts in their relationship? If if they're coming, do, do they ever come to you and sort of say, please, rabbi, help us out and negotiate this as a, as a loving couple? Okay, David, um, you are going to get one of my absolutely famous, favorite and, and most readily available answer as an educator, which is, I don't know. Um, and part of me saying I don't know is because I'm relatively new in my career and I didn't, I haven't really had a whole lot of opportunities to perform marriages. Um, and therefore I just, I personally don't have that experience yet. And I don't want to speak for somebody else's experience. Um, I tell my students that, you know, if I, if I've gone through a, a class with them, a first class with them, and I haven't said this statement to them, then I've kind of almost failed them as an educator, but I don't know is always an appropriate answer as long as it's followed by, but I'll find out. And in this instance, my, but I'll find out is I need some more experience. And maybe this is a question we revisit in another 
year or two years when I have a little bit more experience with it and I might have a different answer for you. I have another question for you. I know that you just moved here from the States and your last position was at a very small shoal. Where was it again? In Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. So coming from there to Canada, I know you've only been here for a very short time, but have you noticed a difference in perspective on this topic from the States to here in terms of acceptance or aversion? Has that come up at all? Honestly, again, um, limited experience in terms of the fact that, you know, I, I can't give you a great answer for that question. It's a really great question because, of course, as you, even just within the United States, if you're changing state, you're going to get different cultural contexts, let alone moving to a different country. Um, I just don't have that uh, experience yet here. I haven't had some of those conversations yet, and, and some of it has not come up for me yet. Well, you'll have to keep us posted. We'll, Absolutely. We'll make a list. One thing that sort of became a sticking point with my rabbi when I was going through my interfaith marriage was children. He sort of said, you know what, what the couples want to do, and you'll take the intro to Judaism class like, like you mentioned, but he sort of said, if you're going to have children, that's where I need to know you're going to have a Jewish home. And I think that sort of became a bit of friction to be like, well, what does a Jewish home really mean and interpret? Is that something, is that similar uh, with, with your temple and with your understanding of, of bringing, bringing together two people, even if they're not of the same faith? Short tentative answer, kind of. Um, longer answer, you know, yes. What, what defines a Jewish home, right? Does, right? I just said, I just moved here. Um, I'm still kind of settling in. I'm living out of boxes, right? Is my home a Jewish home when I don't have my tablecloth set out for Shabbat? You know, what... Uh, what? It feels like you're, you've been wandering for so long, so it could be a very Jewish home. Or it could be not a Jewish home at all. Part of that is I, I would like to think of the best of people, and I would like to bring intention into that, right? So I... My home is a Jewish home, regardless of how much of my stuff I have in here, how much is unpacked, how much I use it, partially because of the intention that I bring into it. Um, and it's hard for me to know what other people do in their homes outside of their conversations with me. And it is a conversation that we have because that is, you know, that is really the salient point is that, as I said, we're creating a a Jewish ritual, a Jewish wedding, with the expectation that this is the start and the beginning of a Jewish home and a Jewish life together. And one of the members happens to be not Jewish. There is that commitment there. The piece about children can cause friction on a number of levels, and I'm uh, a little bit sensitive to that in terms of you know, people who have infertility issues, people who have trouble conceiving, um, couples who are seeking adoption or surrogacy, or there's a lot of other issues that are wrapped up in, in childbearing and child rearing. Um, and that's, an, again, each couple is going to be different. That comes to us and speaks to us. So those conversations are going to be different regardless of who we're talking with. The salient point is still about establishing and creating together a Jewish home and that this is the start, and hopefully not even the, the, the start start, but hopefully you've been discussing this ahead of time, but this is the start of a formalized Jewish life together. 
as a couple. Definitely a conversation that is going to continue and continue and continue. Rabbi, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Bonjour Chai. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Joining us is Rabbi Emeritus Philip Bregman of Temple Shalom in Vancouver. Rabbi, welcome. Thank you, and uh, welcome to you as well. Thank you. Uh, can you briefly explain your decision why you oppose or won't perform any interfaith marriages? It really comes down to what I understood when I was ordained in 1975 as a rabbi, or 1875, it was one of those years, I can't remember which one, that the definition of a Jewish marriage includes, amongst other things, two Jews. Any other um, definition may very well be a marriage uh, according to secular law, and I understand it here very, very clearly, but it's not a Jewish wedding. And if it's not a Jewish wedding, so the question is, why would I be participating as a Maser uh, the as an officiant, uh, if if uh, if it's not a Jewish wedding? So my question on that, um, we, we spoke to another Reform Rabbi earlier who was for um, an, uh, officiating interfaith weddings. So it seems to me that the Reform movement as a whole seems to be accepting. So how do you weigh? Uh, the teachings that you had when you were in school with what seems to be spreading through the reform movement now? Well, the movement, first of all, um, uh, is very much dependent on um, uh, a sense of independence in the sense it, it doesn't mandate. Uh, some uh, rabbinical uh, or Jewish religious movements mandate what rabbis can or can't do in terms of this or other things. The, the, the liberal progressive movement actually doesn't mandate that. I can't um, answer as to why uh, an individual will do it with regard to what I just said as a Jewish, a definition of a Jewish marriage. So if somebody is coming up with a di different definition of, a, of what it is a Jewish marriage, I would like to see how they arrived at that. Okay. Sure. Definition definitions are, are are important, and most certainly definitions can change over over time, as we as we know with science and everything else. Currently, we have a definition of what divides the United States from Canada with regard to a border, whether it be the forty ninth parallel or whatever it is. Okay. Sure. And and we have treaties and everything else based on that, based on the definition. I have yet to see another definition of what is a Jewish marriage other than the fact that it involves two Jews. Yes, it, it must involve a ketubah, it must involve uh, kosher witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. But at the heart and soul of it is this, this, uh, this aspect. When, when a ring is, is, uh, is exchanged, uh, the words that we use, with this ring, uh, am I consecrated unto you? according to the law of Moses and Israel. So my question is, what, what does a non-Jew have to do with Kedat Moshe the Yisrael? I mean, the same thing that you would say that anyone joining into this member or this faith is joining part of it, whether they profess to believe in it. And what I'm really curious about specifically is, do you not think that this could have the opposite effect, that if you do have a member of your congregation who is Jewish and marrying someone who is not, that if you 
decide, I'm sorry, I, I'd love to, I love you, I cannot marry you. Do you not think that this would maybe push out Jewish people to the community? They sort of say, well, I don't want to, I don't feel I'm part of this if I'm not accepted with the person that I love. Okay. So here we get into a very, very important discussion around boundaries. And boundaries are, um, it's a difficult discussion at times with some people as to what is the boundary in, in which you are going to say, no, I'm not going to do this. Now, some people have difficulty saying no. We have parents who have difficulty saying no. We have politicians who have difficulty saying no. We have people who have difficulties. So if we're going to be operating under the philosophical or psychological premise that I might upset somebody, I think that that's a, I think that that's problematic. Do you think that's the reason that, that it's, you know, you're going to upset someone as opposed to, I'm thinking if I wasn't allowed to be married in my reform synagogue in Calgary, I would feel not part of that community. I think it's less about sort of, oh, you know, we have to be the strong person and we can't say, we, we can't spoil the child by saying no all the time. Let me, let me, let me, let, let me, let me take it away from something that perhaps is a little less emotional. You say, if you couldn't be part of your uh, reform uh, synagogue in Calgary. Okay, so let's say your congregation has certain dietary regulations, mm -hmm. whatever they are, but you don't want to abide by those. You want to be able to feel that you can bring anything you want from your home into your synagogue. And if you don't, you won't feel part of that synagogue. Does the same logic uh, apply there? And at that point, the synagogue should acquiesce and simply say, you know what? If you need to bring in shrimp sushi into the synagogue so that you feel part of the synagogue, Okay. Is it not the same type of logic? I would argue that dietary restrictions and the person you love are vastly separate and different things and shouldn't be equated between the two. Why? I'm talking about boundaries. I'm talking about the fact that, that again, uh, there are definitions. No one is saying to you and your beloved that you cannot become part of the synagogue. You cannot participate. Absolutely not. Okay. We're simply saying that in order for this to happen, this is what has to happen. We can go down this line with all sorts of things. For example, a synagogue has definitions of what is required for bar bat mitzvah. So many years of study and everything else. Then you have somebody coming along and says, you know what? My kid needs to have a bar mitzvah next, next week. And, and, and I'm sorry, but this is what's going to happen. I'll pay you a lot of money. And you have to do this bar mitzvah. But isn't this argument a bit more, shall I say, we can't accept same-sex marriage in a synagogue because this is the boundary. This is not what has been done for our thousands of years. We don't evolve. We have to sort of establish certain boundaries. Why should we allow two men or two women, if they're both Jewish, to get married in a synagogue? Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent uh, question. And, and of course, things need to, quote, evolve. So let's take a look at this for, from a uh, sociological point of view, okay? Now, I don't know what the statistics are today because I'm really not in the marriage um, business anymore, being in a marriage. I occasionally, I have a former bar bat mitzvah student uh, who, who makes the silly decision that they want me to do the wedding. <laughs> 
okay? But but I'm not, I'm, I'm by and large, I'm not doing it. But when I was doing that, okay, and this was a very, very important thing. Let's just take a look at this. In a situation where two people get married and one of them is not Jewish and they don't convert and they, and they have children and those children in all likelihood are not raised with any type of Jewishness specifically. And then we ask those children around somewhere around the age of 25, 28 years of age, what is your religious identity? 90% of those people will not answer Jewish. Is this a, is this a statistic you know for a fact, or is this just an assumption? Absolutely, absolutely. No, 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 no. This is this when I was doing this years ago. That was an absolute statistic. Absolutely. Okay. So if if I'm a if if one of my uh, responsibilities is not just the past, the present, but also the future. Okay, I'm looking at that again. I'm not rejecting an individual. I'm not rejecting a couple. If they want to be members of the synagogue, by all means. And, and we have a number of individuals uh, in, in the synagogue. Uh, had uh, when I was uh, the senior rabbi, and I believe still do, um, where there is a interfaith uh, relationship. Okay, but they have chosen something. And by the way, they were not married by a rabbi. They were not married by a rabbi, okay? And one of the things that I want you to know, because I've dealt with this a tremendous uh, amount with regard to conversion and so on. Everybody seems to be very, very concerned about what the Jew is thinking. No one really goes over to ask the non-Jew. I have spent a great deal of time at times asking individuals where there was, quote, an interfaith uh, uh, marriage involving a rabbi, a ketubah, this and that. And I asked the non-Jew, so tell me, how did you feel during this whole thing? And she said, wow, you're the first person to ask me that. I'm going to tell you, it wasn't my wedding. I was completely on the outside. I did not have, I did not feel I could say to my Jewish partner and to his or her family. I don't feel comfortable with this. I'm being asked to participate in something that is not in any way, shape or form authentic to who and what I am. I, I agree that there, there are definitely cases like this, uh, for sure. Um, and perhaps a large majority of them. But I think that there are also some people we, we talked about this earlier, um, that do make it work when they have a very supportive partner. And my question to you is, no matter what um, our opinions are, the stats also show that interfaith families are on the rise in the community. So no what, question. what do we do about it if, if you're saying that this is something that you don't um, support, for lack of a, a better word? So, no, no, no. Again, it's, you're, 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 you're putting words into my okay. mouth in terms of what I, what okay. I support or what I don't support. Clarify that for me then. Two people meet and fall in love. And they want to have some type of a union uh, that, that, that publicly solidifies or demonstrates to the world, okay, that they want to get together. 
and I say to them, good, then find something that is going to not exclude, but include, and is going to be, um, I don't want to say the word faithful. Uh, the word is, is uh, escaping me right now. That, that will be committed. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking about to the traditions that you're, you're not going sure. to, you're not going to end up bastardizing the traditions for your personal um, uh, preference that there's going to be a sense of integrity left. Okay. So, so go, so, so go and get, uh, uh, out here, it's called the commissioner, whether or, or, or a uh, justice of the peace or, or whatever, and have a wedding that celebrates not your differences, but who you are together. What do you have in common? Clearly, Judaism is not one of the things that you have in common, at least yet. Rabbi, wouldn't an Orthodox community or an Orthodox rabbi look at your reformness, your beliefs, and call it the bastardization of Judaism? Uh, some do, some do, but, but would that, but, but, wouldn't it but, then but, be the same thing that he doesn't view or she doesn't view you as a legitimate Jew in their eyes, and then sort of saying whatever you're doing ain't I, Judaism. There's no, there's no question. This is coming. David goes to a reform synagogue just to give you context. I'm, no, 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 no. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, no, no, no. I understand. But you see, I, I tell you something. Um, I came to Vancouver in 1980. In 1981, I co-founded with my conservative colleague, the Rabbinical Association of Vancouver. And it is something that probably is an anomaly throughout the world in terms of the cooperation and, and the, the, the uh, working together of all the various denominations in the city uh, with the exclusion of Chabad because they have chosen not to be part of it, okay? Now, we have our differences as well, but we're not there to try and satisfy each other. We're there un trying to understand and understand what our differences are. But sure, there are going to be people who say, I'm not legitimate or I'm not this or that. Okay? We, you know, you can, you can worry about that or you can say, that's not an issue for me. Okay, it's it's not an issue for me. I'm I'm looking more in terms of what is in common. For example, my conversions uh, that I uh, officiate at, okay, are accepted by the vast majority of the rabbis in the community, okay, and overwhelmingly by the community itself. But not not by but the state of Israel, are, I they, would imagine. But they, oh, they are accepted by the state of Israel. Okay. They're accepted by the state of Israel, not the chief rabbinate right. of Israel, but they are stated, by, but they are accepted absolutely by Medinat Yisrael. Okay. And, and, and so, and so there are th certain things, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, with the reform rabbis in Canada when we came up with a Canadian reform ketubah. And we went and put it through um, some Orthodox rabbis in Toronto and saying, does this have the essence of what is necessary in a ketubah? And they came back and said, yes. Okay? Other things. So it's questioned that it, you're working not in isolation. 
And that's the whole thing. You're not working. I don't see us as working in isolation. You you, you mentioned hypoth- you know you mentioned hypotheticals before, and I believe as we get to the end of this conversation, I, I really just am curious about a hypothetical that come to you where you have someone who is not Jewish who believes in God deeply, who's a very spiritual person, won't convert to Judaism versus someone who has cares less about Jewish morals and Jewish social justice, but is willing to get the Jewish rubber stamp in order to convert. What, as a spiritual leader, would you find is more is more significant to you with your connections to God? Someone who possesses these facets or someone says, I just need the Jewish stamp to please my partner. I'm, I'm, I'm then going to be kosher in your eyes. So you ask a very, very important question. And that's around the whole aspect of what do I think is in the heart and the soul of an individual who's coming uh, to uh, possibly convert? I say possibly convert because my course is always called the Jewish information class. Okay. Some people may think it's euphemistic for a conversion class, but it's called the Jewish information class because there is no commitment on my part or anything that I elicit from the, from the student beforehand that says this is going to ultimately end up as a conversion. Okay. But when we get through that process of education, and most of my conversion uh, uh, the students who start and whatever, the process somewhere was, is really, was really between 12, 14, 15 months. Okay. There's study, there's courses, there's, there, 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 there's um, uh, assignments, and, and there's the experiential thing at the end, and so on. And I can only really delve into what I'm feeling with this individual. Can somebody fake me out? Absolutely. Okay. Can, can somebody lie to me? Absolutely. But I'm trying to give us both the opportunity of getting to know each other and a situation. And, 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 that, and where I have the opportunity to sit with this student, if this is someone who is not partnered up, or even if they are partnered up, to not have the Jewish partner and say, okay, between us, is this something you feel? Is this something that you want? How, how are you feeling? And I, and, I, and I get into conversations about how does your family feel about this? And, you know, and I have to say that in many instances, the person says to me, wow, you're the first person asking me if you're concerned about my family. I said, of course, I'm concerned about your family. OK, so it's not a simple thing to simply say. And we, we sort of drag this out. Oh, this person really has a profound commitment. This was a stamp. I've learned I, I really can't really understand. Have I have I blown it? with regard to convening a bait dean with individuals who probably in the long run should not have taken that step. Sure. I, I, I'm absolutely positive that I've, I've blown, that I've been fooled, that I've been this or that. Um, I, I hope I'm being honest with the person and, and allow a setting where the person can be honest with me. So, so again, it's a process now. So, I'm not into quickie conversions, okay? It makes no sense. No one benefits from this other than maybe a caterer. But no, no one benefits from this. I'm looking at the long term and the same thing. And and, and if two people, they're, they're in love with one or they want to be there, I say to them, may you have without 
putting anything God's blessing on you. May you may you truly enjoy each other, find each other, okay? And and, and at some point, if there's a connection that you want to become part of the Jewish people, that's open as well. And if you want to raise your children exclusively as Jews, and I say that. Okay, because I'm not into, uh, you know, we're going to do Christmas, we're going to do Hanukkah, we're going to do Kwanzaa, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We know what the results are when this happens. We absolutely know what the results are because no one wanted to set some boundaries. Okay, nothing is, that the kid's identity is such a mishmash at the end. And I've had conversations, plenty of conversations. Individuals say, why didn't somebody stand up and, and do the right thing? They wouldn't send me out into the cold with without being properly dressed. They wouldn't uh, pack a lunch for me that was filled with absolute chazerai and had no nutritional value. Why were they so wishy-washy when it came to my spiritual identity? And these are the questions that the children are asked years later of their parents. Because again, no one was prepared to set some boundaries around that. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your perspective with us today, Rabbi. And uh, one day maybe we'll have you back on again to discuss this or many of the other areas that you specialize in. Well, we'll see how much hate mail you get. Now is time for Nachas, something that made us feel Jewish or goodish or anything going on in our lives. I think I'm going to jump in right first and I'm going to sort of say, I, I want to I shout out to everyone who managed to come in from across the country for my wedding. I really want to thank Rabbi Mark Glickman for doing an amazing job, for making John and I feel so welcome and so included at Temple B'nai Tikva. And to, um, to everyone who had a, a wonderful time with us together this past weekend, thank you. Thank you, everybody, very much. Alana, do you have a nachas for us? I had the pleasure of going to see the Orchestre Metropolitain at the foot of Mount Royal the other day, and they played a, uh, I want to say, one or two movements, maybe one movement, by the Jewish composer Fanny Mendelssohn, who, although didn't uh, grow up in a very Jewish household, was born to two uh, very Jewish parents. And uh, I thought that was really neat. They played compositions from her and another female composer um, between the Beethoven and, uh, you know, the other typical stuff that they play at events like this. And I did some research on her, and uh, it's very fascinating to know that she wrote about 500 uh, compositions during her life, though six of them were published under her husband's name, Felix Mendelssohn. Um, and now they're, you know, starting to use compositions uh, from women more. Uh, she was, you know, uh, creating music during the 1800s, which is really incredible when you think about it. So yay, Fanny Mendelssohn. Yeah, yay, Fanny, indeed. Avi, what is your nachas? So um, I've been on this road trip. I have been uh, tooling around middle America. Um, I've ended up in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I had a couple of really nice Jewish moments. Um, one, and this is a, 
so I'll give two uh, Nachas pieces. One is more of a word of wisdom, and we can uh, share with that and think about it. Um, but the first one is uh, a shout out to uh, an amazing rabbi who's down here in Louisville, who is part of the family of people that are doing Chabad of Kentucky. Um, he certifies uh, bourbon as kosher. He has taken me around on these tours to some of these distilleries. It's been wonderful getting the, like a behind the scenes look of distilleries with a fellow rabbi. Um, he actually has a website called bourbonrabbi.com. Uh, he uh, talks about bourbon all the time. He actually bottles his own bourbon and he has like a, a blending light. Like it's a whole, like he really is into bourbon. It's a really amazing thing. So shout out to uh, Rabbi Chaim Litvin. It's been wonderful being with you for the past few days um, and go everybody should go check out his site bourbonrabbi.com um, we're making these plans to have like a, a bourbon tour with like people that are really like want to come here for three four days and get into bourbon um, with uh, a couple of rabbis um, sign me up um, I like bourbon done you should uh, yeah not, we need 19 more people but anyways so that's the first thing did you did you get into a, a debate with him about what constitutes kosher or not and what uh, what signifies that no no we know that we have differences um, in, halakhically but those are like minor differences about like, well, you know, maybe, maybe bourbon can be filled in certain casks or not, or, or whiskeys can be in certain casks and not others of the wine issues and stuff like that. Um, halach, but that's a halachic discussion and debate and we respect each other's opinions. And I mean, he'll tell me, oh, you're wrong, but like, whatever. We That's, we're, we're, we're aligned pretty much on kosher. It's not that, that's not it. Um, the other nachas um, wasn't obviously a Jewish moment, um, but really became a profound moment, even though it was something really light. Um, my hotel is actually around the corner from the Louisville Slugger factory um, and museum um, and, of course, gift shop. So I go do the Louisville Slugger tour, which is, it was meaningful. It was nice. My first baseball bat my dad got me was a Louisville Slugger painted red with a Johnny Bench signature on it. And Johnny Bench is really a, a, like aligned with this, uh, you know, uh, with Louisville Sluggers is really known with that. Uh, and I end up at the gift shop when I'm done. And there's a nice little corner of memorabilia, signed memorabilia. I guess people are trying to like buy anything related to baseball in, in, in that way. And I go and I see uh, one of the baseballs that is signed was signed by Bill Buckner and Mookie Wilson together. Um, and exactly. So David's giving me this. I don't know the sports thing. Um, I'm going to explain it. So um, Bill Buckner is a man who, when in 1986, when the Red Sox were several outs away from making it to the World Series, um, bobbles a ball that was hit by Mookie Wilson. Um, which allows a rally to continue and ultimately the Mets win and um, Bill Buckner becomes a pariah in the Boston world for you know yet yet again making the Red Sox um, you know miss another opportunity to get to the World Series of course he's there's been some redemption because in 2004 the Red Sox did win the World Series um, and move on and um, you know and that's that and you would think that Bill Buckner might not become very good friends with Mookie Wilson, right? He doesn't hate him, but you would think that, well, you are responsible for the ball, the hit um, that happened that I made a mistake on, um, and yet they become close friends. Um, and there's, there's a lot of documentation about this. There's stories about it. Um, and here's a baseball that they both signed. And I was thinking to myself, like, this is the time of, uh, right, Sunday's uh, Tisha B'Av is the ninth day of Av, and we, they, they talk about how the temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred, because people didn't like each other for no reason whatsoever, right, for, for small nothings of nothings, and there was a lot of hatred in the air in there. And it could easily be that Bill Buckner would not uh, like uh, Mookie Wilson. Um, and I think that this ball became this thing for me, and I had to own it. 
um, as a sign and a reminder that a one's mistakes are not necessarily the fault of the other person and don't hate people just because they are the cause of your misfortune um, and so now I own this ball it is going to sit on my desk as a reminder that one um, should always you know as we say look positively uh, and think better for people and um, and be friends with the people that you would otherwise not necessarily think uh, should be your ideal friendship so that's my word of wisdom slash nachas um, all, all of that together uh, and all of that came from the Louisville Slugger um, Museum and Factory gift shop um, so thank you Louisville for giving me that moment uh, for now and for the future thank you so much Abby Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of August 5th, Parshat Devarim. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by Sokold. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai so that they can hear what we're all about and join the Frozen Chosen. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. I'm David Sklar. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm Avi Feingold. And now, here's a bit of my vows from the wedding. It was Super Bowl Sunday. Not that I cared much about football, but rather I want to illustrate the mood of the city. It was cold, it was dark, and I may have had a date with someone else earlier in the afternoon. <laughs> there I was, outside Montreal, Sherbrooke Metro, facing Square St. Louis, waiting for a stranger to approach. A stranger, mind you, who had already begun to woo me with his words online. As you approached, I turned, smiled, and said, Jack. <laughs> you stopped with that John look of judgment and replied curtly, John. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is going to go so well. But surprisingly, it did go well. Through nine years of living in Montreal, Jerusalem, Doha, Calgary, not London, I'll have everyone here bear witness that I was not invited with him to partake in that city's experience. <laughs> when I moved to Calgary nearly nine years ago, I didn't know what I was getting into. When I told my mother I was thinking of moving here, she looked at me with horror and said, but you'll need to get a new passport, open a new bank account and everything. Now, of course, my mother technically knew Calgary was located in Canada, but in her mind, this town could have been on another planet as far as she was concerned. You told me how you don't know how I was able to drop everything and move across the country for some boy. And for someone who has a terrible time with making up his mind, and for anyone who knows me, I can't decide between buying one white t-shirt and another white t-shirt, then I live in regret and end up going back to the store and returning both of them. <laughs> but for choosing you, in reality, it was easy. I knew I loved you, and I knew it was right. Now, while I promise I cannot put away my cuffs in the dishwasher, I will endeavor to honor you, lift you up when you are low, and walk together with you side by side, maybe except for that moment over there. <laughs> except when you're causing us to run late to an opening night show. <laughs>